Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hey, everybody. This is Robin Morades, the director of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. Today, I'm joined by Malachi, a public defender and an excellent lab volunteer. Really glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Robin. I'm happy to be here as well. Describe the events that led up to you contacting the Lawyer Assistance Program. What happened? (laughs) Oh, well, we was on fall break from school. For those that receive financial aid at certain periods, we get that refund. So we get our money and it's to pay for the things that the tuition hadn't covered, all the living expenses. And so I've got that refund right before fall break and I went back home. And as soon as I got home, I hadn't been there since August. And this is now late September. And as soon as I got back home, I went right back to familiar environments and went out partying, drinking, and I got in a lot of cocaine. It was about a quarter ounce of cocaine. And I was going to use that for the period of the fall break. And so I was just partying most of the time by myself. And at one point I was with another friend and he went into the store. We had just gotten some more and I'd been up all night at that point, And I forgot that I still had some in my pocket that I was going to save for later. And he went into the store to get some beer. And I, in such a rush, because I wanted another hit, was outside the store and started to try to hit the cocaine. And I saw a police officer go by. And so I immediately tried to go in the other direction. And it was funny, I was going behind the store and some other people that was on the other side of the store, they was trying to flag me that the police officer was coming around my way. So I turned around real quick and was trying to go back the other way and the officer stopped me. And by that time I got rid of the cocaine that was in my hand. So the officer asked, you know, can I search you? And I said, yeah, sure. And as soon as he started searching me, I remembered, oh shoot, I still got that bag in my pocket. And then he found the bag and put me in a police car. And I found it funny, my friend came out of the store and he was like, what happened, what happened? And the cop, I could see the cop telling him, yeah, I found some stuff on him. And the cop showed him what it was. And it was clear that the amount that I had was a lot more than what we had just gotten. And my friend kind of looked at me like, oh, that's what you get. We would have never had to get more if you had just come out with what you had. And so anyway, the cop took me downtown and I'm crying now at this point. I mean, I've been arrested plenty of times before, but you know, now we go, I go back to school that Monday and this is Saturday and go downtown and the magistrate was a black magistrate. I'm explaining to him, you know, look, you know, I'm in law school. You know, I go back on Monday. What a pickle. (laughs) Yeah, I go back on Monday. You know, he can still see the tears in my eyes. You know, I'm like, you know, is this a bag of of, of cocaine? And, you know, he looks at me and he's like, he pulls out his bar card. And his bar card was from Ohio, I believe. You know, he's like, I can't get barred in North Carolina because of my issues. You need to stop. And he released me on my own recognizance. So I didn't have to post a bond. I'm like, I don't have any money to pay a bond. And so he released me on my own recognizance. And so, and I left, walked away, called my sister. Like, I just got arrested. And she's like, boy, you need to stop. You know, you're too old for this now. What are you doing? And as soon as I got back to law school, I went and talked to a professor. Actually, I went and talked to the psychologist. And she 
said that she you know would, would work with me but wanted to refer me to a professor and she preferred me to uh fred williams an excellent and lab volunteer exactly <laughs> <laughs> and when i met with professor williams the first thing he said to me he said do you want to stop using more than anything and uh, immediately i said yes he said no don't answer that right now take a couple of days and come back and tell me your answer and so I had to really think about it and think about what he said. Do I want to stop using more than anything? And at this point now, I've already got a criminal record. So it's only by the grace of God that I got it in law school. I mean, I had a DUI pending when I got accepted to law school. And then pick up this new charge of possession of cocaine. And so I had to think about it. And it was like, do I want to be sober more than I want to be a lawyer? And at that point, I knew drinking was what I thought my biggest issue, um, even though I use other substances, but, uh, you know, understanding my history and how many problems alcohol and drugs have caused me at that point, it was like, yes, sobriety would be even more important than being a lawyer at this point. And so and I went back and, and told Professor Williams, he then referred me to a lab in um, Tawana Garner. And so mm -hmm. I began working with her while I was in my first year of law school. How did interacting with a lab volunteer affect you and your willingness to work with the lawyer assistance program? He played a couple of roles. One, because he was a well-respected professor at the law school and a well-respected lawyer in the community, and he was a Black man. It was, one, a level of mentoring, but also it helped me to see that despite my choices and despite my disease, I could still be successful, you know, and at that point I'm going through law school with a part of me with an expectation that I may not be able to be a lawyer. And so, you know, Professor Williams was, was always someone that I could talk to as I was going through the process and, and also having that, that fear that I, I go through all this and I'm not able to be a lawyer to remind me of what was most important, sobriety. So it would help me to stay focused on still doing what I needed to do in law school but also accepting that, you know, even if I graduate with honors, like I did, because of my disease and my choices, I may not be a lawyer, but if I have sobriety, that's even more important than that JD that I would get. Professor Williams in that regard helped me a lot. And then when it came to actually getting licensed, once I, <laughs> you get the letter from the bar you know, in the first paragraph, it says, congratulations, you've passed the North Carolina bar examination. The next paragraph, however, because of these issues, there's questions about your moral fitness and character. And so you're going to have to have a hearing. And so it's like, because you get that high of, yeah, I passed the bar. And then immediately, oh, Lord, I got to have this hearing. And so Professor Williams advocated for me during my character and fitness hearing. And the ability also for him to, to talk about my work with LAP through law school was instrumental in my being able to actually be a lawyer. Many people don't understand the deep healing that ultimately results from starting on a road to recovery. It starts out as not drinking and not using no matter what. Like you talked about Professor Williams asking you, do you want to do this no matter what more than anything? It starts out as that. But honestly, if that's all it was, I doubt many people would stay. In the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, Dr. Silkworth observes that the message which can interest and hold us must have depth and weight. And your message certainly does. 
You have one of the most emotionally transparent and vulnerable articles we've ever had in terms of delving into your childhood issues. You write an open letter to your pops, and I encourage listeners to read the article in the show notes. I want to start by asking you, what role did hip hop play in your life? (laughs) You know, literally hip hop was in some ways a father figure for me because as an adolescent, early teenage years, it was through hip hop where I was getting information about what manhood meant. I'm fortunate because, you know, I come from the era of hip hop that we kind of call the golden age. I began listening to it right before I moved from New York in 1988. And so the way hip hop evolved, the MCs of that time were older oftentimes, and a lot of them were college educated. And so the things that they were rapping about, a lot of the most successful ones and and well-known were rapping about was more affirming and more positive. So I have certain favorite rappers. Rakim is one of my favorite rappers. And that's because it was from listening to him that I gained an appreciation for the mastery of words, using words to express ideas. And then another of my favorites was KRS-One. His name, Knowledge Reigns Supreme, over nearly everyone. It was the importance of reading and of understanding myself as a Black male. And groups like Public Enemy that had more of a political message. So it was, you know, at a young age, understanding through the music, the politics of the times that I was living in. And so it was through hip hop that I really was getting the instruction of as I grow, the things that I should be cognizant of and the things that are important and that as a man, as a Black man, that I should be able to opine about. So in that respect, I considered hip-hop like a father figure because those were the things that I would expect a father to be teaching his young son. But then you moved to North Carolina and the hip-hop scene started to change. Tell us about that. I moved to North Carolina when I was 10. So it was over several years. So by the time I became 13, 14, this time now the early to mid 90s, you know, hip hop became more of a commercial entity. And the popular music that you'd hear on the radio, instead of being as much about the uplifting, became more about the streets, became more about what they called gangster rap back in the day. And I never liked that term, but it was more about young black males and younger rappers, those that are now 16, 17, 18 are getting the exposure and they're talking about life on the streets, selling drugs and drinking and smoking. And Tupac during that time was still one of my favorite artists, but a lot of his music talking about as much positive as it might have had, it would also have as much talking about drinking and street life and things like that. So the information I was getting at that time, the ideas that that was helping to form me at that time was that, you know, as a man, I need to have a I don't give a F attitude. You know, that as a man, I'm do whatever I want to do and need to make money and things of that nature. So it as the music evolved, as I was getting older, uh, my ideas of manhood also, I would say devolved, actually. You know, that's what I thought I was supposed to be. Also, when I juxtapose that to some of my other heroes who had experienced the street life, you know, or even my, my natural father who had experienced the street life, it was... It's because of the work that I do with a lot of the kids, it's almost in lower income communities with 
young black males in particular, that as a rite of passage, the certain things that were taught or we believe that we're supposed to do. And with the way that hip hop was used and I say exploited in a lot of ways, it gave a lot of us the perception that our rite of passage into adulthood, into manhood is through the streets, through jail, through substance use. That is how we actually are supposed to develop into manhood. I find this very moving. It's so different from our typical interview. What did drinking and using do for you emotionally? It stunted my emotions. That was the whole point. You know, I started off just smoking. That was more recreational. My friends would drink and I'd see how much more fun they seemed to have than I would when I was just smoking. So I was already getting an inkling of, well, maybe I need to drink. At the time, I was still trying to hold on to some of my spiritual core. So I was trying to avoid alcohol. But it was because of a girl. There was a girl I was attracted to and I liked. And she like someone else. And I remember going to my homeboy's house and he had a bottle of Thunderbird left. And I said, Joe, let me hit that. He said, what, you don't drink, B? Like, oh, let me hit it, man. And so I drank some of it. But what I realized was that in the drinking, that feeling that I didn't like of being rejected or being hurt, I didn't even think about it anymore. Once I started to feel that alcohol, that hurt feeling that I had going to Joe's house, wasn't even there anymore. And so it was with alcohol that I discovered that when I have feelings that I don't like, I can mute them, I can blunt them, I can suppress them, and I don't even have to feel that way anymore. And alcohol allowed me to more so escape some of my own insecurities because with alcohol, People always understood that, well, if someone was drunk, they ain't necessarily responsible for how they behave. I could always give the excuse, well, I acted like that. I was more flamboyant. I was more personable. Well, that's because I was drinking. You know, I was drunk. So it allowed me to actually be some of what I wanted to be, but I was too emotionally afraid of being that. You know, I've always been very shy and I wanted to be more outgoing. I didn't know how to, and I was scared to because I didn't want to be rejected if I was more outgoing. This is just with people in general. Um, the alcohol would allow me to suppress that fear of ridicule if I try to be outgoing and someone doesn't receive it well. Um, because if I was ridiculed about it, I could always blame the alcohol. That wasn't me, that was the alcohol. So you're not disliking me, you're disliking the alcohol. And if they liked it, great, I got the attention that I was craving. So yeah, alcohol had that dual nature for me to allow me to escape bad feelings, but then allowed me also to explore aspects of myself that I wanted to explore, but was scared to. What did you discover about yourself in therapy? I discovered a lot and I still do therapy. And so that's continual discovering, but it was working with Dr. James while in law school. What I discovered was that I didn't like myself, that I didn't value who I actually was, that I was so disliking of myself that I preferred to keep or project different personas 
of who I thought I should be or who I thought people would like more. And I first learned through therapy that I could like myself, even as flawed as I am, that, you know, that's, that's the human condition, but that I was worthy of being liked. And it was perfect for me because I was developing spiritually through my study of scripture while at the same time doing the therapy. And so it was allowing me to learn to like myself, who I was, as flawed as I am, but at the same time, allowing me to see myself as my God sees me in accordance with my faith. Having both of those working at the same time created a benefit for me that then allowed me to be able to explore why is it that you don't like yourself? What is it that caused you to not like who you are? You know, then that led me to learning that I had daddy issues. You know, I had issues of abandonment and fear of rejection that stemmed from all the way back when my father had left. And I found it funny because my mother had said for years, decades at that point, that she thought I had issues because of my father leaving. And I'd always cool, cool, like, nah, that's, I ain't got no issues with that. That's, you know, that's, that's nothing. Um, and even by the time I started therapy, I'd already reconciled with my father, at least I thought. I'd already developed a, another relationship with my father. And so I, I you know, told myself, I don't, I don't have any issues about that. And so, but working through therapy, it was like, well, yeah, mom was right all these years. You know, that I did have <laughs> abandonment issues stemming from that. I did have insecurity issues that, you know, stem from that. And so that initial time when it came to developing sobriety, to be able to allow me to become sober as opposed to just abstaining, mm-hmm. it was learning those things in therapy early on during my first and second year of law school. For listeners who may not be familiar in recovery, talk about the difference between being dry and being sober. And sobriety is not just about being dry. It's this totally integrated healing process that you're describing that happens for us along the way. So you said that you had a a reconciled relationship with your father. What role has forgiveness played on both sides, both forgiving and making amends? It was necessary. And my process and my role to sobriety wasn't necessarily through the 12 steps, Mm -hmm. but aspects of the 12 steps played a part. And making amends, forgiveness, it became essential for me to vocally forgive my father. You know, I knew that that would help me to internally forgive him as well. It's easy to say I forgive someone or, and oftentimes we think that we've forgiven someone. You know, I thought that I had forgiven my pops, but by actually forgiving him, I was able to let go of the hurt that I had stored up for so long. Because once I actually forgave him for it, then it's a matter of, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. Because in order to keep holding it against you, I'm having to keep holding on to it. And so by forgiving him, it allowed me to actually let go of it. But also in that process of forgiving him, it was a forgiving of myself because I'd almost feel ashamed for having been hurt by it or for allowing that to impact how I felt about myself for so long, forgiving myself for making decisions that I had made for so many years that were self-destructive. And I wasn't able to grow with my God in the way that I needed to 
if I didn't forgive my father genuinely. It also allowed for me to continue to mature spiritually with my Heavenly Father. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Years ago, you sat on a panel at our Minority Outreach Conference. When it was your turn to share, you performed spoken word. No one was expecting it, least of all me. And uh, when you were done, everybody's jaws dropped and you could hear a pin drop. And there was this long pregnant pause and then the room erupted in applause and standing ovation. It was incredibly moving. And it was that performance that formed the basis of your article that we have in the show notes. So for our listeners, would you be willing to perform that again for us here? Yes, I'd be happy to. Take it away whenever you're ready. Okay. Sometimes I wish you would have left before I was born, rather than leaving me with memories. Your abandoning me before I turned 10 left me dealing with feelings of insecurity, wondering why you didn't even like me. I didn't understand when you left the importance of having a father to spend time with, and it wasn't until I moved to NC that it really sunk in. I felt excluded and lonely, realized for the first time I lived in poverty, and unlike in NY, kids I went to school with had parents with Lexuses and Benzes. It was then I wished you were around again just to buy me new kicks again. Even worse than your leaving was you're not reaching out just to see how I was doing. So I began hoping you were in prison or dead because the alternative would have been that you were just disappointed in your kid. Your leaving left me feeling like, damn, if my pops ain't want me after he got to know me, why would anybody else? Eventually, that feeling of wanting to hear from you disappeared, and during my teenage years, I told myself, I ain't care about you. Shoot, he ain't care about me. Decided you were the epitome of the man I would not want to be. I began to hate you, consider you only a woman be there and half of a man. I vowed if I did ever see you again, I'd whip your ass for all the times you raised your hands at my mom in the past. And my search began. Seeking to replace my father with a father figure, someone to help me figure out what being a man was all about, and it was in hip-hop where I discovered my first surrogate father. So while brothers refer to the culture as she or someone to wed to me, hip-hop was a he teaching me how to be a man in my community. Hip-hop instructed me to think of a master plan to get paid in full and develop my philosophy to fight the power. Hip-hop introduced me to El Haj Malik, and after reading his autobiography, Malcolm became the model of manhood for me, but... Cold books and speeches couldn't feed my needs because I had questions about manhood that neither books, music, or my mom could answer. Like how to approach a sister I was interested in and how to handle the rejection. Questions about dealing with my peers, like how far should I go to fit in with my friends, whether fighting or a kick between the legs was really fighting dirty. I wanted to ask you if someone came at me with his fist, was it appropriate to pick up a brick and beat him with it? Was it ever okay to run from a fight? Should I sleep with ugly chicks just to get the experience? I mean, pops. I had questions and I needed you around when I decided to get down with the boys in the hood because at 15 it seemed to me that the only ones who could teach me about being a man were the older guys on the block who I looked up to and thought were cool because they did whatever the hell they wanted to do. I needed you when I began to dismiss school and was becoming too much for my mom to handle. I needed you when I decided to hustle because I knew you were a hustler and so was Malcolm, so I believed it was in my blood to go to prison. Although I had no clue about the cold of the streets, the streets embraced me, created for me a whole new family, dispelled my fear, rejection, replaced my insecurities for the security a desert eagle brings, began filling the hole in my soul with alcohol to drown my sorrows, eased my thoughts of inadequacy by binding myself to TAT, even bathed in cocaine to numb the pain of your abandonment. Me. 
all the anger and frustration I bottled up for you was released on the streets against fiends and police, even at other brothers who looked like me. The tender heart and fear of God mom instilled in me was gone. New definition of manhood was simply survival. No longer believed in my dreams. Forget tomorrow. Just wanted to make it through the day. Learned to crack commandments quickly, but was a pitiful criminal because what I wanted most was attention. My mission was to gain acceptance and to be respected because George was missing. So I replaced yours for people who reminded me of you, who like you were drug addicted criminals, but even with them, I didn't fit in. I felt more tolerated, even hated. So I had to be seen as the craziest just to get the attention from you. I was craving, see, you left me, but you didn't leave me alone. Your presence was replaced with emotional baggage that left me damaged and took me decades to discover it and deal with it just so I could heal from it. But don't get it twisted. I didn't write this to be vindictive. See pops, you're forgiven. I forgive you and even thank you for going missing because I've since learned that my real father didn't, that I was always loved and protected and had a father's guidance, was never forsaken. My real father consistently provided for me, even rescued me at all my times of needs. Watched out for me when I slept on tracks, prevented trains from coming and running me over. Kept me out of situations that would have necessitated I kill someone. Allowed me to OD on dinner and powder while on school grounds so I'd be found. Sent legions of angels to cover me in the midst of shootouts so I'd walk away unscathed. All this before I was even saved. My father in heaven held me down when I laid on the ground, holding little Jay as his life slipped away. In the midst of my pain, he opened heaven's gates just to say that he was in control and I needed to let go. See, Pop, my father even drove for me all the times I drunk myself to oblivion and had no idea how I made it home again. He healed my body from muscle damage so severe, doctors prepared for my heart to arrest. See, Pop, my father never left or forsook me, even did things you never could. He guided the hands of attackers so knives and bottles didn't puncture anything vital. He set straight the trajectory of bullets so the two that didn't miss didn't hit anything important. So Pops, you are forgiven. Just as my father has forgiven me because ironically, while I was wanting you to want me, I was guilty of abandoning my God who was craving attention from me. I did to my God the same thing you did to me. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, but now I see. It was never you who I needed. Thank you for donating C-Man, but C-Man, the man that I am today is all because of him who never went missing, my true father in heaven. So Pops, you are forgiven. Wow. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Robin. Oh, my God. Just incredible. <laughs> okay. How do you use your recovery in your work as a lawyer with those that you represent? I use it all the time because most of my clients have experienced a lot of what I've experienced. Being a lawyer, especially a criminal defense lawyer, and in particular a juvenile defender, trust is paramount. And so the ability for my clients to trust my advice, trust my strategies, is essential for me to adequately represent my clients. And so the fact that my clients can understand that I can relate to them at a level that most other lawyers aren't able to, because most of our clients from criminal court are young black males and come from impoverished neighborhoods. And most of my clients have substance abuse issues. And so the fact that I can relate to them helps me with the lawyer aspect. But more important for me is because our title is actually lawyer and counselor at law. It's the counselor aspect, because regardless of what we decide to do with the particular case, it's the opportunity to provide counsel. And just like any therapy, you know, all of us that, that are on the road of sobriety, you know, that have therapy, they, 
developing trust with your therapist is essential in order to really have an impact on behavior. And so by having a relatable experience that allows me to develop trust for the lawyer part, it also allows me to develop trust for the counseling part so that we can talk about the necessity of getting help, the necessity of changing relationships, the necessity of changing environments to avoid continuing being caught up in the injustice system. So yeah, I think my experiences and, and my testimony allow me to be, and I intentionally try to use my experiences and my testimony with my clients because I think it allows me to be a better lawyer and at least the type of lawyer that I want to be, that's able to be more holistic in nature and not just deal with the client's immediate criminal issue, but to be able to help them to avoid the situations that lead them to needing me in the first place. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think we should discuss? I mean, I would just say that I think that I was fortunate that I got involved with LAP in law school because had I not, then I probably would have gotten a law license and then lost because I wouldn't have taken the opportunity to get the help that I needed. And so it's invaluable what the Lawyers Assistance Program can provide for not just substance abuse, because substance abuse is a mental health issue and it's scary to acknowledge that we need help. Most of us don't do it until we've gotten arrested, until we've gotten to we, something has happened that's gonna cause us to lose everything, but that doesn't have to be. I just hope that more lawyers take the opportunity because the best thing sobriety brought me was having to feel. You know, we talked about emotions initially, I think one of the most important things I discovered from this process is that when I started heavily using, I was stunted emotionally. So while I was maturing physically, it wasn't until I stopped using and I actually had to deal with being hurt, having my feelings hurt and not being able to run away from it, that I actually began having the human experience. That whole idea of puppy love hurts, you know, when you lose it. And it was like, wow, to experience that. It was exciting having the opportunity to experience those emotions as an adult chronologically with life experiences. It's an amazing adventure. So while it's, the prospect of change is, is scary, there's so much more that's gained when you either get sobriety or you get the right help that you need for whatever mental health condition you're suffering. So that's what I would say. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you, Robin, for everything you do. Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.